This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today we're reading Second Period, First Narrative, Chapter 1, of Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone. As we head in a new direction, we have a new narrator, Miss Verinder's cousin, Miss Clack. Let me give you some notes on Second Period, First Narrative, Chapters 1 and 2. The Second Period, subtitled The Discovery of the Truth, begins with the narrative of Miss Clack, Sir John Verinder's niece, and Rachel's cousin. Miss Clack, in her self-righteously pious tone, explains that she is currently living in Brittany and has received a letter from Franklin Blake asking her to relate the events Miss Clack witnessed while visiting with Rachel in London during the weeks after the diamond theft. Footnotes added by Franklin Blake assure us that Miss Clack's narrative stands unaltered. Miss Clack relates events accurately by consulting her diary. Miss Clack first visited the Verinders shortly after they arrived in London on Monday, July 3rd, 1848. Lady Verinder sends word through Penelope, inviting Miss Clack for lunch the following day. Miss Clack leaves Christian pamphlets for the household. And now we'll begin Second Period, Chapter 1. I am indebted to my dear parents, both now in heaven, for having had habits of order and regularity instilled into me at a very early age. In that happy bygone time, I was taught to keep my hair tidy at all hours of the day and night, and to fold up every article of my clothing carefully, in the same order, on the same chair, in the same place, at the foot of the bed, before retiring to rest. An entry of the day's events in my little diary invariably preceded the folding up. The evening hymn, repeated in bed, invariably followed the folding up, and the sweet sleep of childhood invariably followed the evening hymn. In later life, alas, the hymn has been succeeded by sad and bitter meditations, and the sweet sleep has been but ill-exchanged for the broken slumbers which haunt the uneasy pillow of care. On the other hand, I have continued to fold my clothes and to keep my little diary. The former habit links me to my happy childhood, before Papa was ruined. The latter habit, hitherto mainly useful in helping me to discipline the fallen nature which we all inherit from Adam, has unexpectedly proved important to my humble interest in quite another way. It has enabled poor me to serve the caprice of a wealthy member of the family into which my late uncle married. I am fortunate enough to be useful to Mr. Franklin Blake. 
I have been cut off from all news of my relatives by marriage for some time past. When we are isolated and poor, we are not infrequently forgotten. I am now living, for economy's sake, in a little town in Brittany, inhabited by a select circle of serious English friends, and possessed of the inestimable advantages of a Protestant clergyman and a cheap market. In this retirement, a patmos amid the howling ocean of popery that surrounds us, a letter from England has reached me at last. I find my insignificant existence suddenly remembered by Mr. Franklin Blake. My wealthy relative, would that I could add, my spiritually wealthy relative, writes, without even an attempt at disguising that he wants something of me. The whim has seized him to stir up the deplorable scandal of the Moonstone, and I am to help him by writing the account of what I myself witnessed while visiting at Aunt Verinder's house in London. Pecuniary remuneration is offered to me, with the want of feeling peculiar to the rich. I am to reopen wounds that time has barely closed. I am to recall the most intensely painful remembrances, and this done, I am to feel myself compensated by a new laceration, in the shape of Mr. Blake's check. My nature is weak. It cost me a hard struggle, before Christian humility conquered sinful pride, and self-denial accepted the check. Without my diary, I doubt. Pray let me express it in the grossest terms. If I could have honestly earned my money, with my diary, the poor laborer who forgives Mr. Blake for insulting her is worthy of her hire. Nothing escaped me at the time I was visiting dear Aunt Verinder. Everything was entered, thanks to my early training, day by day as it happened, and everything down to the smallest particular shall be told here. My sacred regard for truth is, thank God, far above my respect for persons. It will be easy for Mr. Blake to suppress what may not prove to be sufficiently flattering in these pages to the person chiefly concerned in them. He has purchased my time, but not even his wealth can purchase my conscience too. Note added by Franklin Blake. Miss Clack may make her mind quite easy on this point. Nothing will be added, altered, or removed in her manuscript, or in any of the other manuscripts which pass through my hands. Whatever opinions any of the writers may express, whatever peculiarities of treatment may mark, and perhaps in a literary sense, disfigure the narratives which I am now collecting. Not a line will be tampered with anywhere, from first to last. As genuine documents, they are sent to me, and as genuine documents, I shall preserve them, endorsed by the attestations of witnesses who can speak to the facts. It only remains to be added that the person chiefly concerned in Miss Clack's narrative is happy enough at the present moment, not only to brave the smartest exercise of Miss Clack's pen, but even to recognize its unquestionable value as an instrument for the exhibition of Miss Clack's character. Miss Clack continues, My diary informs me that I was accidentally passing Aunt Verinder's house in Montague Square on Monday, July 3rd, 1848. Seeing the shutters opened and the blinds drawn up, I felt that it would be an act of polite attention to knock and make inquiries. The person who answered the door informed me that my aunt and her daughter, I really cannot call her my cousin, had arrived from the country a week since and meditated making some stay in London. I sent up a message at once, declining to disturb them, and only begging to know whether I could be of any use. The person who answered the door took my message in insolent silence and left me standing in the hall. She is the daughter of a heathen old man named Betteredge, long, too long, 
tolerated in my aunt's family. I sat down in the hall to wait for my answer, and, having always a few tracts in my bag, I selected one which proved to be quite providentially applicable to the person who answered the door. The hall was dirty, and the chair was hard, but the blessed consciousness of returning good for evil raised me quite above any trifling considerations of that kind. The tract was one of a series addressed to young women on the sinfulness of dress. In style it was devoutly familiar. Its title was, A Word With You On Your Cap Ribbons. My lady is much obliged, and begs you will come and lunch tomorrow, too. I passed over the manner in which she gave her message, and the dreadful boldness of her look. I thanked this young castaway, and I said, in a tone of Christian interest, Will you favor me by accepting a tract? She looked at the title. Is it written by a man or a woman, miss? If it's written by a woman, I'd rather not read it on that account. If it's written by a man, I beg to inform him that he knows nothing about it. She handed me back the tract and opened the door. We must sow the good seed somehow. I waited till the door was shut on me and slipped the tract into the letter box. When I had dropped another tract through the same area railings, I felt relieved, in some small degree, of heavy responsibility towards others. We had a meeting that evening of the select committee of the Mother's Small Clothes Conversion Society. The object of this excellent charity is, as all serious people know, to rescue unredeemed father's trousers from the pawnbroker, and to prevent their resumption, on the part of the irreclaimable parent, by bridging them immediately to suit the proportions of the innocent son. I was a member, at that time, of the select committee, and I mention the society here because my precious and admirable friend, Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite, was associated with our work of moral and material usefulness. I had expected to see him in the boardroom, on the Monday evening of which I am now writing, and had proposed to tell him, when we met, of dear Aunt Verinder's arrival in London. To my great disappointment, he never appeared. On my expressing a feeling of surprise at his absence, my sisters of the committee all looked up together from their trousers. We had a great pressure of business that night, and asked in amazement if I had not heard the news. I acknowledged my ignorance, and was then told, for the first time, of an event which forms, so to speak, the starting point of this narrative. On the previous Friday, two gentlemen occupying widely different positions in society had been the victims of an outrage which had startled all of London. One of the gentlemen was Mr. Septimus Luker of Lambeth. The other was Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. Living in my present isolation, I have no means of introducing the newspaper account of the outrage into my narrative. I was also deprived at the time of the inestimable advantage of hearing the events related by the fervent eloquence of Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. All I can do is state the facts as they were stated on that Monday evening. Proceeding on the plan which I have been taught from infancy to adopt in folding up my clothes. Everything shall be put neatly, and everything shall be put in its place. These lines are written by a poor, weak woman. From a poor, weak woman who will be cruel enough to expect more? The date, thanks to my dear parents, no dictionary that was ever written can be more particular than I am about dates, was Friday, June 30th, 1848. Early on that memorable day, our gifted Mr. Godfrey happened to be cashing a check at a banking house in Lombard Street. The name of the firm is accidentally blotted in my diary, and my sacred regard for truth 
forbids me to hazard a guess in the matter of this kind. Fortunately, the name of the firm doesn't matter. What does matter is a circumstance that occurred when Mr. Godfrey had transacted his business. On gaining the door, he encountered a gentleman, a perfect stranger to him, who was accidentally leaving the office exactly at the same time as himself. A momentary contest of politeness ensued between them as to who should be the first to pass through the door of the bank. The stranger insisted on making Mr. Godfrey precede him. Mr. Godfrey said a few civil words, they bowed, and parted in the street. Thoughtless and superficial people might say, Here is surely a very trumpery little incident related in an absurdly circumstantial matter. Oh, my young friends and fellow sinners, beware presuming to exercise your poor carnal reason. Oh, be morally tidy. Let your faith be as your stockings, and your stockings as your faith, both ever spotless, and both ready to put on at a moment's notice. I beg a thousand pardons. I have fallen insensibly into my Sunday school style, most inappropriate in such a record as this. Let me try to be worldly. Let me say that trifles, in this case, as in many others, led to terrible results. Merely premising that the polite stranger was Mr. Luker of Lambeth, we will now follow Mr. Godfrey home to his residence at Kilburn. He found waiting for him, in the hall, a poorly clad but delicate and interesting-looking little boy. The boy handed him a letter, merely mentioning that he had been entrusted with it by an old lady whom he did not know, and who had given him no instructions to wait for an answer. Such incidents as these were not uncommon in Mr. Godfrey's large experience as a promoter of public charities. He let the boy go and opened the letter. The handwriting was entirely unfamiliar to him. It requested his attendance within an hour's time at a house in Northumberland Street, Strand, which he never had occasion to enter before. The object sought was to obtain from the worthy manager certain details on the subject of the Mother's Small Clothes Conversion Society, and the information was wanted by an elderly lady who proposed adding largely to the resources of the charity if her questions were met by satisfactory replies. She mentioned her name, and she added that the shortness of her stay in London prevented her from giving any longer notice to the eminent philanthropist whom she addressed. Ordinary people might have hesitated before setting aside their own engagements to suit the convenience of a stranger. The Christian hero never hesitates where good is to be done. Mr. Godfrey instantly turned back and proceeded to the house on Northumberland Street. A most respectable, though somewhat corpulent man, answered the door and, on hearing Mr. Godfrey's name, immediately conducted him into an empty apartment at the back, on the drawing-room floor. He noticed two unusual things on entering the room. One of them was a faint odor of musk and camphor. The other was an ancient oriental manuscript, richly illuminated with Indian figures and devices, that lay open to inspection on a table. He was looking at the book, the position of which caused him to stand with his back turned toward the closed, folding doors communicating with the front room, when, without the slightest previous noise to warn him, he felt himself suddenly seized round the neck from behind. He had just time to notice that the arm round his neck was naked and of a tawny brown color, before his eyes were bandaged, his mouth was gagged, and he was thrown helpless on the floor by, as he judged, two men. A third rifled his pockets, and, if, as a lady, I may venture to use such an expression, searched him, without ceremony, through and through to his skin. 
Here I should greatly enjoy saying a few cheering words on the devout confidence which could alone have sustained Mr. Godfrey in an emergency so terrible as this. Perhaps, however, the position and appearance of my admirable friend at the culminating period of the outrage, as above described, are hardly within the proper limits of female discussion. Let me pass over the next few moments and return to Mr. Godfrey at a time when the odious search of his person had been completed. The outrage had been perpetrated throughout in dead silence. At the end of it, some words were exchanged among the invisible wretches in a language which he did not understand, but in tones which were plainly expressive, to his cultivated ear, of disappointment and rage. He was suddenly lifted from the ground, placed in a chair, and bound there hand and foot. The next moment he felt the air flowing in from the open door, listened, and concluded that he was alone again in the room. An interval elapsed, and he heard a sound below like the rustling sound of a woman's dress. It advanced up the stairs, and stopped. A female's scream rent the atmosphere of guilt. A man's voice below exclaimed, "'Hello!' A man's feet ascended the stairs. Mr. Godfrey felt Christian fingers unfastening his bandage and extracting his gag. He looked in amazement at two respectable strangers, and faintly articulated, "'What does all this mean?' The two respectable strangers looked back and said, "'Exactly the question we were going to ask you.' The inevitable explanation followed. "'No, let me be scrupulously particular.' Sal volatile and water followed, to compose dear Mr. Godfrey's nerves. The explanation came next. It appeared from the statement of the landlord and landlady of the house, persons of good repute in the neighborhood, that their first and second floor apartments had been engaged on the previous day, for a week certain, by a most respectable-looking gentleman, the same who has been already described as answering the door to Mr. Godfrey's knock. The gentleman had paid the week's rent and all the week's extras in advance, stating that the apartments were wanted for three Oriental noblemen, friends of his, who were visiting England for the first time. Early on the morning of the outrage, two of the Oriental strangers, accompanied by their respectable English friend, took possession of the apartments. The third was expected to join them shortly, and the luggage, reported as very bulky, was announced to follow when it had passed through the custom house late in the afternoon. Not more than ten minutes previous to Mr. Godfrey's visit, the third foreigner had arrived. Nothing out of the common had happened, to the knowledge of the landlord and landlady downstairs, until within the last five minutes, when they had seen the three foreigners, accompanied by their respectable English friend, all leave the house together, walking quietly in the direction of the Strand. Remembering that a visitor had called, and not having seen the visitor also leave the house, the landlady had thought it rather strange that the gentleman should be left by himself upstairs. After a short discussion with her husband, she had considered it advisable to ascertain whether anything was wrong. The result had followed, as I have already attempted to describe it, and there the explanation of the landlord and landlady came to an end. An investigation was next made in the room. Dear Mr. Godfrey's property was found scattered in all directions. When the articles were collected, however, nothing was missing. His watch, chain, purse, keys, pocket handkerchief, notebook, and all his loose papers had been closely examined, and had then been left unharmed to be resumed by the owner. In the same way, not the smallest morsel of property belonging to the proprietors of the house had been abstracted. The Oriental noblemen had removed their own illuminated manuscript and had removed nothing else.
What did it mean? Taking the worldly point of view, it appeared to mean that Mr. Godfrey had been the victim of some incomprehensible error, committed by certain unknown men. A dark conspiracy was on foot in the midst of us, and our beloved and innocent friend had been entangled in its meshes. When the Christian hero of a hundred charitable victories plunges into a pitfall that has been dug for him by mistake, oh, what a warning it is to the rest of us to be unceasingly on our guard! How soon may our own evil passions prove to be oriental noblemen who pounce on us unawares! I could write pages of affectionate warning on this one theme, but alas, I am not permitted to improve. I am condemned to narrate. My wealthy relative's check, henceforth, the incubus of my existence, warns me that I have not done with this record of violence yet. We must leave Mr. Godfrey to recover in Northumberland Street, and must follow the proceedings of Mr. Luker at a later period of the day. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. After leaving the bank, Mr. Luker had visited various parts of London on business errands. Returning to his own residence, he found a letter waiting for him, which was described as having been left a short time previously by a boy. In this case, as in Mr. Godfrey's case, the handwriting was strange, but the name mentioned was the name of one of Mr. Luker's customers. His correspondent announced, writing in the third person, apparently by the hand of a deputy, that he had been unexpectedly summoned to London. He had just established himself in lodgings in Alfred Place, Tottenham Court Road, and he desired to see Mr. Luker immediately, on the subject of a purchase which he contemplated making. The gentleman was an enthusiastic collector of Oriental antiquities, and had been for many years a liberal patron of the establishment in Lambeth. Oh, when shall we wean ourselves from the worship of Mammon? Mr. Luker called a cab and drove off instantly to his liberal patron. Exactly what had happened to Mr. Godfrey in Northumberland Street now happened to Mr. Luker in Alfred Place. Once more the respectable man answered the door and showed the visitor upstairs into the back drawing room. There again lay the illuminated manuscript on a table. Mr. Luker's attention was absorbed, as Mr. Godfrey's attention had been absorbed, by this beautiful work of Indian art. He too was aroused from his studies by a tawny, naked arm round his throat, by a bandage over his eyes, and by a gag in his mouth. He too was thrown prostrate and searched to the skin. A longer interval had then elapsed than had passed in the experience of Mr. Godfrey, but it had ended as before, in the persons of the house suspecting something wrong and going upstairs to see what had happened. Precisely the same explanation which the landlord in Northumberland Street had given to Mr. Godfrey, the landlord in Alfred Place now gave to Mr. Luker. Both had been imposed on in the same way by the plausible address and well-filled purse of the respectable stranger, who introduced himself as acting for his foreign friends. The one point of difference between the two cases occurred when the scattered contents of Mr. Luker's pockets were being collected from the floor. His watch and purse were safe, but, less fortunate than Mr. Godfrey, one of the loose papers that he carried about him had been taken away. The paper in question acknowledged the receipt of a valuable of great price which Mr. Luker had that day left in the care of his bankers. This document would be useless for purposes of fraud, inasmuch as it provided that the valuable should only be given up on the personal application of the owner. As soon as he recovered himself, Mr. Luker hurried to the bank, 
on the chance that the thieves who had robbed him might ignorantly present themselves with the receipt. Nothing had been seen of them when he arrived at the establishment, and nothing was seen of them afterwards. Their respectable English friend had, in the opinion of the bankers, looked the receipt over before they attempted to make use of it, and had given them the necessary warning in good time. Information of both outrages was communicated to the police, and the needful investigations were pursued, I believe, with great energy. The authorities held that a robbery had been planned, on insufficient information received by the thieves. They had been plainly not sure whether Mr. Luker had, or had not, trusted the transmission of his precious gem to another person, and poor polite Mr. Godfrey had paid the penalty of having been seen accidentally speaking to him. Add to this that Mr. Godfrey's absence from our Monday evening meeting had been occasioned by a consultation of the authorities, at which he was requested to assist, and all the explanations required being now given. I may proceed with a simpler story of my own little personal experiences in Montague Square. I was punctual to the luncheon hour on Tuesday. Reference to my diary shows this to have been a checkered day, much in it to be devoutly regretted, much in it to be devoutly thankful for. Dear Aunt Verinder received me with her usual grace and kindness, but I noticed, after a little while, that something was wrong. Certain anxious looks escaped my aunt, all of which took the direction of her daughter. I never see Rachel myself without wondering how it can be that so insignificant-looking a person should be the child of such distinguished parents as Sir John and Lady Verinder. On this occasion, however, she not only disappointed, she really shocked me. There was an absence of all ladylike restraint in her language and manner most painful to see. She was possessed by some feverish excitement which made her distressingly loud when she laughed, and sinfully wasteful and capricious in which she ate and drank at lunch. I felt deeply for her poor mother, even before the true state of the case had been confidentially made known to me. Luncheon over, my aunt said, "'Remember what the doctor told you, Rachel, about quieting yourself with a book after taking your meals.' "'I'll go into the library, Mama," she answered. "'But if Godfrey calls, mind I am told of it. I am dying for more news of him, after his adventure in Northumberland Street.' She kissed her mother on the forehead and looked my way. "'Good-bye, Clack,' she said, carelessly. Her insolence roused no angry feeling in me. I only made a private memorandum to pray for her. When we were left by ourselves, my aunt told me the whole horrible story of the Indian diamond, which, I am happy to know, is not necessary to repeat here. She did not conceal from me that she would have preferred keeping silence on the subject. But when her own servants all knew of the loss of the moonstone— and when some of the circumstances had actually found their way into the newspapers, when strangers were speculating whether there was any connection between what had happened at Lady Berender's country house and what had happened in Northumberland Street and Alfred Place, concealment was not to be thought of, and perfect frankness became a necessity as well as a virtue. Some persons, hearing what I now heard, would have been probably overwhelmed with astonishment. For my own part, Knowing Rachel's spirit to have been essentially unregenerate from her childhood upwards, I was prepared for whatever my aunt could tell me on the subject of her daughter. It might have gone on from bad to worse till it ended in murder, and I should still have said to myself, The natural result. Oh, dear, dear, the natural result. The one thing that did shock me was the course my aunt had taken under the circumstances. 
"'Here, surely, was a case for a clergyman, "'if ever there was one yet. "'Lady Verinder had thought it a case for a physician. "'All my poor aunt's early life "'had been passed in her father's godless household. "'The natural result again. "'Oh, dear, dear, the natural result again. "'The doctors recommend plenty of exercise "'and amusement for Rachel, "'and strongly urge me to keep her mind "'as much as possible from dwelling on the past,' "'said Lady Verinder. "'Oh, what heathen advice,' I thought to myself. "'In this Christian country? "'What heathen advice?' "'My aunt went on. "'I do my best to carry out my instructions. "'But this strange adventure of Godfrey's "'happens at a most unfortunate time. "'Rachel has been incessantly restless and excited "'since she first heard of it. "'She left me no peace till I had written "'and asked my nephew Abelwhite to come here.' "'She even feels an interest in the other person who is roughly used, "'Mr. Luker, or some such name, "'though the man is, of course, a total stranger to her. "'Your knowledge of the world, dear aunt, is superior to mine,' "'I suggested diffidently. "'But there must be a reason, surely, for this extraordinary conduct on Rachel's part. "'She's keeping a sinful secret from you and from everybody. "'May there not be something in these recent events "'which threatens her secret with discovery?' "'Discovery?' repeated my aunt. "'What can you possibly mean? "'Discovery through Mr. Luker? "'Discovery through my nephew?' "'As the words passed her lips, "'a special providence occurred. "'The servant opened the door "'and announced Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. "'Well, it looks as though our story, "'The Moonstone, is really heating up. "'We hope you enjoyed second period, first narrative.' Written for Mr. Franklin Blake by the very pious Miss Clagg. By the way, we've received some nice reviews here at 1001 Stories for the Road, and I wanted to share a few with you. Amazing! My ultimate relaxation. Five stars. I found 1001 Stories for the Road a year ago, and I love it. After long, stressful days, or potting around doing the daily chores, your podcast is the ultimate chill-out. The selection of stories is fantastic. All quality literature. I'm loving the Moonstone. Thank you, John. Down from Collinsonator, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, wonderful storytelling. Five stars, 1001 stories for the road. I love John's selection of tales and, of course, his fantastic voice. I found him searching for Agatha Christie stories years ago and have stayed for countless epic tales and mysteries. I love his whole 1001 network. Great work. Keep it up. Makes chores so much more fun when I can look forward to listening while doing them. Thank you for what you do, John. Down from Pickles Infinity, Apple Podcast, U.S. And The Moonstone, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I can't wait to hear all of it. What a great story, told in a wonderful manner. Down from N.S. Thomp, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great selection of stories, 1001 Stories for the Road. Five stars. I love listening to the stories on this podcast. The narrator selects a wide variety of entertaining tales and is a great reader. I'm particularly enjoying his presentation of The Moonstone, now from K. Meckham, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Moonstone, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. So enjoy listening to the stories. His voice is perfect for telling these great books. Down from SureDog987, question mark, question mark, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to give us these reviews. They're greatly appreciated, and I know they bring new listeners to us. So thank you so much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road, 
and the Moonstone, which has taken on a whole new direction as we begin this part two. We'll return next Sunday at noon Eastern time, everyone. Until then, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.